All right, the uh, text for today is 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 8. You yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain, though we'd already suffered and been shamefully mistreated at Philippi, and as you know, we had courage in our God to declare to you the gospel in spite of great opposition. For our appeal does not spring from deceit or impure motives or trickery, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the message of the gospel, even so we speak not to please mortals, but to please God who tests our hearts. As you know, and as God is our witness, we never came with words of flattery or a pretext for greed, nor did we seek praise from mortals, whether from you or from others. Though we might have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nurse tenderly caring for her own children. So deeply do we care for you that we are determined to share with you not only the gospel, but our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. So, uh, you know, Paul's addressing the church in Thessalonica to talk about a number of issues that uh, we laid out, and I guess it's now two weeks ago. Um, it's a church that struggled with the same kind of internal divisions that churches had typically struggled with. Uh, we talked about Paul laying out a case in the beginning for uh, a, a specific understanding of, of what it looks like to be a virtuous member of a Christian community, emphasizing uh, a different way of loving, a, a different way of, of hoping, and a different way of believing. And, you know, that, 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 that is uh, fairly consistent with how letters would have worked in antiquity. And so uh, one of the uh, formal elements of a letter uh, that we see is uh, after a kind of opening uh, statement of purpose and objectives, you'll typically, uh, in an ancient letter, see an author talk for a little bit about their relationship with the people that they are addressing the letter to. So, you know, Paul's kind of had his mission statement, and here he is. He's uh, talking to the folks in Thessalonica about uh, his ministry and his re- relationship with them, and to be honest, reading it, it seems it seems a bit intense, right? I mean, you, you think about first of all what prompts Paul, and you'll see how kind of um, you know I don't want to say aggressive, but emphatic the language is uh, in in this opening about his relationship with his audience in Thessalonica. And there's almost the sense that you kind of feel like in reading this that like you're reading someone else's email, you know, or reading Paul's correspondence to this church, and he's talking about. Uh, not only his mission, but how he came to know them and what the, the tenor of their relationship was like. And he's doing it um, not just to, you know, kind of do the personal politics of it, but I really think Paul is trying to frame here uh, his own motivations and the, own res- uh, and the resources that are informing his work on behalf of the kingdom. So if we read this letter, and the thing we might surmise, we know there are arguments about this, is that Paul's been under a little bit of attack in uh, the context of his ministry. That's one of the things that prompts the writing of the letter. And we we can surmise from the answers to the accusation and from things we know that were said about Paul is that Paul was basically being accused of being a uh, self-serving, persuasive slickster who's uh, involved in ministry mostly to promote his own good, to promote his own ends. And uh, it sounds like specifically he was being accused of using his extensive skills as a thinker and as a writer to get his way. So Paul's going to do, after he lays out those opening objectives that we talked about in the first week, is he's going to address those charges 
quite head on. Is he going to address the charge that he's doing it uh, for his own good and to advance the interests of himself? And he's going to do it, and I, this is why it's useful to us. It, I, I don't, you know, I, knowing how great Paul was is a nice thing for us to know, but it doesn't particularly help us in terms of our own spiritual life. What does help us in terms of our own spiritual life is to think about his structures and uh, the motivations uh, behind what he does, and then by extension to think about how he thinks about ministry. Uh, and basically the argument he makes during this entire thing is that the main point for Paul is that uh, what is being presented here is not his own truth, but God's truth. And the means of its presentation are not simply uh, for the sake of uh, you know, uh, creating a, some good for him, but rather he puts the other person first, puts the other person primary in the presentation of the gospel. That is Paul's kind of framing of his singular focus here, that he starts with a truth that is not his own, but is, that is God's, and that he speaks it for the good of the other person and without any uh, you know, understanding of or expectation of return. What's beautiful about it is that, and especially if you, um, you know, if there's anybody in the uh, church that has spent a good bit of time thinking about the ancient traditions and canons of rhetoric, but uh, <laughs> Paul's answer here, Paul is, Paul is really doing a pretty uh, interesting shtick in that what he's saying is that the Christian understanding of persuasion works almost exactly opposite the understanding of persuasion that the culture had. He's saying that the, uh, and, and you'll see as we kind of walk through the text that there's so many things that he's saying here that he's doing uh, what, that would be contrary to what the uh, received wisdom on, uh, from Greek and, and Roman rhetoric would have done. So what Paul's doing here is not just uh, that he is talking about the character of his ministry, but he's talking about how it is that God persuades and moves among us and how we ought to think about our relationship to that question. Because if you spend any amount of time working with or doing God's work in, in, in ways that uh, you know, have seen some success or borne some fruit, you know that you know, it's very tempting. You, may, you see these kind of uh, uh, pastors at very large churches. Who, uh, it's very tempting to make it exclusively about who you are and what you do and about the efficacy of your ministry and not about the fact that God is working in and through each person. And so Paul's giving us a framework here for thinking about how we ought to understand our role in doing God's work and persuading others. And that, that, that to me is, uh, is uh, more interesting than just talking about Paul's self-justifications here, which there may be some of that too. He says that his coming to the people of Thessalonica was not in vain. So Paul sets it up, as we read, by saying that he was traded shamefully at Philippi, but despite the fact that he had faced opposition, he said uh, that he has the courage to declare the gospel. Now, that, that's a theme that's going to become fairly central here. There's a specific word for the courage to declare the gospel. That word, some of you may have uh, heard it at some point, is a famous Greek word called parisia. It means something like telling the truth or speaking under a condition of danger. Parisia is a kind of speech that, unlike the smooth and, you know, flowery speech of someone who can, you know, talk you out of your life savings by uh, selling you some dubious pro product, Parisia is a kind of speech 
that very few of us get to engage in very frequently, but that, uh, you know, if you've ever had a situation where you felt like you had to say something, that you had to say it in a way that was not, you know, uh, extremely well ornamented, that you just had to declare what you saw to be the truth, even if it was unpopular, and that you had to take a stand to say something, and then by saying it, you may have created uh, some resistance to yourself, you may have put yourself in uh, kind of a, 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 a marginal position, but you kind of had to say it. That's parisia. Parisia is this sense of truth-telling that says, there, and sometimes the truth that we have to tell is so powerful, uh, so, uh, so uh, pivotal in, any, in a given social situation that we kind of have to say it. If the ancient rhetorical tradition that Paul's implicitly criticizing here was something like a good rhetorician is able to shape their ideas to maximize success among an audience, Paul is saying here that the truth shapes you. The truth shapes you, so your goal is not to maximize its success, but rather you simply, instead of formulating an artful defense of it, you simply declare it. And to declare it puts you in some tough positions with other people who don't necessarily agree. See, what Paul's saying here is that he was trained in Aristotelian rhetoric. He was trained in uh, the canons of Roman rhetoric. It's pretty clear if you look at how he formally lays out letters, the kinds of arguments that he makes, the kinds of proof that he sees persuasive. But what Paul's saying is that there is here a fairly stark distinction between how we might think in the secular world about persuasion and how we might think in the holy world about persuasion. And, and the difference is, in the secular world, we massage and spin the truth to get it to say uh, and to be acceptable. But in, in, the, in the holy world, the truth shapes us, it directs us, and what makes us persuasive in doing it is not that we can say it pretty, but instead that we are faithful to it. That's the beautiful thing about a vision of Parisia, that what is persuasive there is not that uh, it's about how well you've uh, put the case together, but that it is the truth itself that is persuasive, and we, well, shoot, we're just supposed to declare it. In practical terms, that meant that while well, all the Greeks and Romans would have been running around saying uh, that they would persuade people on the basis of what they would have found palatable. So there would be, as Paul points out, vain flattery. If you wanted to persuade someone in ancient Greece, you'd come in and you'd say, you know, Chris, you're, uh, you're so wonderful, you know, and what a fantastic pink shirt and, uh, you know, what, uh, what a thoughtful guy so that would... Oh, sure. Yeah, of course. Who, uh, who would obviously hear what I'm having to say and connect, you know, and so uh, a significant part of ancient understanding of rhetoric was about ingratiating yourself to the audience. The other big principle in it was that you should use principles that built on what the audience already believed. So if you wanted to make, I don't know, a case for the existence of God, you'd say, you know, you guys, uh, you know, you worship this guy Caesar, you know, and he like kind of controls everything. And he, sees everything and I don't know maybe we maybe who created Caesar maybe there's someone bigger than Caesar the point for Paul though here is that the uh, he doesn't want to argue by borrowing from what they would have called the common topos the common places the common sense or shared wisdom he wants to argue uh, in the name of something that is fundamentally different from how we normal think about think normally think about and engage the world. He, he is, in essence, wants to make a defense of the gospel that, you know, when you lay it out, and this is one of the funny things I think that I think we've all experienced about 
the, uh, a Christian apologetic work is when we're doing, you know, kind of apologetic work or justifying the faith, we talk about the logical necessity of having a vision of God, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not that often that we jump immediately to what I take to be the basic point of Christian faith. When someone's like, why do you believe in God? I don't know that many people that are like, well, uh, I think it's necessary that I die. Uh, and he died, and what is uh, contained in the cross is a radical call to self-sacrifice so that we can obliterate ourselves and love other people unconditionally. I mean, like, you work up to that, you know, but, like, that, the, the, at the core of the Christian faith, at least as I think about it, is something that works exactly because it's what Paul called, borrowing on the rhetorical tradition again, a stumbling block. He calls it a, a scandal on, something that you'd say that would be very difficult to swallow. So Paul is kind of making this point that instead of working on the ways, either the vain flattery or the deceit or the tricks, he says earlier in, uh, in the passage we looked at today, Paul instead says that we had the courage in our God to declare to you the gospel in spite of this opposition, that declare world. Eperisimetha is to speak with or to speak for a concern for telling the truth, even if it means danger for yourself. That's the thing. I mean, we, we, we have experienced this conception of Parisi, like I said before, when we say we're about to tell the truth about something uh, in a way that it creates risk or danger for us. But the problem that Paul's dealing with is a little bit more complex than simply saying, if I say something that's really bluntly true and it goes against conventional wisdom, people will accept it. Because the other really interesting thing in how Paul and the ancient Greek tradition would have thought about this is this. In the ancient Greek tradition, there was something like a false parisia and a true parisia. Now, and, and we, we know what that's like. You've seen, have you ever met someone who's like, oh, you know, I offend everybody. I'm such a truth teller. And I'm just like always telling the truth and people get mad, but that's just who I am. And like, as you got to know that person better, you, you know, you might realize that there's some other motive involved in creating conflicts with people. Um, and that they say that they simply want to tell the truth, but maybe that, that they're enjoying the uh, ability to poke or to prod other people. There's a kind of false parisia, uh, a false parisia that says a person declares that they're always making things clear for us and saying things that's not, uh, that, that aren't going to be popular. But of course, oftentimes, especially in politics, people say, you know, I'm not going to try and express a view that uh, is exactly popular here. And I'm sure a lot of people in the audience don't like what I'm about to say, but we shouldn't kick puppies. It's terrible. You know, like, there's not really parisia there. There's taking on of or acting like you're speaking in a way that is clear and, and, and is, is motivated by the truth. But that's not really parisia. That's a false parisia. So Paul is saying here, uh, in addition to speaking the truth, that you have to speak the truth with a certain kind of motive. So, you know, I, I, I talked a little bit already about the idea that he sees himself to be declaring the word of God instead of framing something to be persuasive in a way that it's likely to be uh, accepted by the audience. So, you know, to, 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 to look back again at the section we looked at just a moment ago, our appeal does not spring, he says, from deceit or impure motives or tr trickery, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the message of the gospel, even so we speak not to please mortals, but to please God who tests our hearts. So the, the, the vision here of what it looks like to speak the truth persuasively is ultimately that one's primary audience is what? Is God. That God is the one who is ultimately the persuader. That the goal of our speech ought not to be to please other people, but 
uh, if our goal is to speak towards and in the name of and for the purposes of God, uh, God is the one who tests and shapes and, uh, and directs heart. God is the truth that shapes. And if, uh, if, it, if God is the truth that shapes us, instead of being some concept that we make up our shape, our goal is to speak with a fidelity to who God is and then to let God do uh, the work of persuading. That's what Paul's saying about the truth of God. It's not some elaborate way of saying, oh, I'm not you know, really after my own good here, but join my ministry. He's saying that if one is truly oriented towards the truth of God, if the truth of God is the thing that they speak with an incredible fidelity, and if it is spoken for the purpose of uh, caring for and of loving the other person instead of getting something back from them, then that truth, that means of speaking the truth, is persuasive not because of our excellence, but because of our care and God's care and God's excellence. That's why, you know, what Paul's saying is that it's really difficult for us to imagine in the conventional means of persuasion that uh, we could make a great case for God were we honest about the Christian faith. When we think about the things that we say about it, we might say that absent a vision of God, there's moral relativism, or we can't make sense of where consciousness came from, or whatever apologetic arguments people love to talk about. But the truth is, those things are arguments that, you know, while they're good at, uh, at addressing uh, doubts for those who are, who are already faithful, in some ways they miss the mark of what the gospel declares. The gospel is not a particularly soothing balm. It's this kind of fiery challenge. The gospel says that you should die because he did, that he emptied himself, and so we should sacrifice ourself. And Paul says if you want to think about the persuasiveness of that kind of message, you have to understand it to be persuasive not because it's well-formed, but because it reflects something about the character of a universe that is created by God's hand. It's a much different kind of claim then for how we might persuade people. And, you know, we spend so much time, I think, thinking about how we can maximize our impact by the kind of life we lead or how we tell the story. But the truth is what Paul is saying here is that if you love God and see that God is the core of all truth, and if you love the other such that you don't expect anything back from them, then you are in a position to speak God's truth. And here's the thing. When Paul talks about it, he gets like frighteningly specific about the kinds of relationships it should entail. And like weirdly. So first, as he moves on in this, he reaffirms that he's exactly this kind of phrasia. So in verse 5, he says, As you know, and as God is our witness, we never came with words of flattery or a pretext for greed, nor did we seek praise from mortals, whether from you or from others. But then check this out. Here are his preferred metaphors for, in that first part, he's saying, you know, I'm not using the device's rhetoric. I'm speaking the truth as God lays it on me. But he has these two <coughs> metaphors for his relationship between uh, his work and the people. And they're, they're weird. Okay, so the first one, he says, uh, he says, uh, though we might have made demands, that's Prezi again, as apostles of Christ, we were gentle among you. And uh, how does everyone's uh, Bibles translate Sabin? Like a nurse tenderly caring for her own children. Yeah, everybody got nurse, basically? Yeah, so the, the, uh, it, that's good because the relationship that Paul is suggesting is not, you know, like the medical nurse. It's, he's talking about breastfeeding. He's talking about uh, a mother who is, you know, the word there is trophos, like is trying to fatten up their kid. Now, I, I've never myself breastfed, uh, but, you know, I, I, I've heard people talk about it. And, uh, you know, and even to watch your kids breastfeed, you see the like incredibly intimate, beautiful relationship that the mother and the baby have. 
right? Even, even in times when, um, you know, it's, it's not optimal. I always lo- loved watching uh, Beth feed the kids because for that moment, uh, you know, all, her focus was almost fully on uh, the kid. And there's like all this awesome neuroscience stuff about how, you know, you make eye contact with the baby and there's like, all this release of bonding hormones, and it's really significant for the emotional stability of the of the mom and the baby. And it doesn't have, just have to be breastfeeding, of course. Like you know, you could bottle feed and get that same kind of intimate connection. But the point is, the metaphor he's using here doesn't just suggest that we were really being caring people. He's suggesting a relationship that's about nourishment and that's about mutual support. That's about um, uh, creating a tie with someone in a really intimate way. And then here's the the second. Metaphor. So, what? How does everyone's um, uh, uh, Bibles translate eight? So, this King James. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear to us. Yeah. Anybody else got a non-KJB affectionately desirous? Is the word like the NRSV? Is we really care for you? Because we loved you so much. Because we loved you so much. Yeah. So here's what's like here's what here's here's where the KJV is better. This is a word that's used I think once or twice in the in the New Testament. It, the word is hieromenoi, okay? And it means like gushing with physical attraction. Like the Strong's Bible translated as I'm gushing for you. And uh, the there's a, there's a note in this one too that's um, right after affectionately desirous that says also could be translated as longing yeah, so like that's the thing is, Paul is talking here about uh, the love he's modeling is erotic love. He's he's not simply modeling like this agopic, hey, I you know I'm for you because you're made in the image of God. I mean, like he's talking about like a very specific experience of uh, physical attraction. So I thought about it, you know, and like first of all, it seemed really weird because I thought it was back in like 1990s swingers style, like <laughs> you're. Those babies are like so spiritually hot, you know, so like get in there and get them. And of course, that's a really strange way of thinking about it. So, you know, trying to get a little uh, kind of more direction on what Paul's saying here. And then it struck me like Paul is saying that there's these two relationships there, one like the mother and one like a relationship where there's intense physical attraction. Because in each of those relationships, what is the thing that is shared in common? What's shared in common is uh, those are places where we have a heightened focus on the other person that is not just about ourselves, but rather if you're overcome by the beauty of someone, of course, there's a longing built into that. But the Greeks especially believed that sometimes you could see someone that uh, was, uh, was so beautiful, both physically and morally, as if they were kalos or kala or whatever, I guess the Greek word for it is. But uh, that you could find someone who is so beautiful that they would draw you to them in a way that made them the focus and that you'd forget a little bit about yourself. And in the same way as the a baby who's nursing at the mother, what Paul is saying is that he has been given a truth by God, that that truth by God is something that he speaks on the condition of it potentially being dangerous, that he's charged by God to declare it, and that what makes it different from other kinds of attempts to persuade or finagle or change is that Paul is saying it really is all about the people of Thessalonica. It really is about putting a focus on them and making sure that they get whatever is needed out of the relationship instead of the ministry getting whatever is needed about the relationship. And so, so in that case, Paul's vision of how the kingdom works 
is, uh, is continuous with those, those values that we talked about last week, a, a means of love, a way of believing, a, a mode of hope, and that Paul is telling us that when it, comes for us, when it comes time for us to make the case, or when we're given the opportunity to make the case for Jesus Christ, that we ought not be inhibited by worrying about questions of how we can frame it in the maximally effective way, or we ought not worry so much about uh, setting up the conditions for a relationship such that we can make it clear. Sometimes we have so many obstacles in talking to people about the truth of Jesus that we simply omit to say the very direct, very straightforward truths that are at the center of the gospel because we excuse ourselves from saying them out of a concern for, I don't know, it's not the right moment. I needed to make it more effective. There is a better way to approach this person. I could build the relationship with them. And what Paul is saying here is when you think about outreach and evangelism that way, you are buying into the uh, old secular understanding of persuasion, which is about getting someone hyped up and about an idea and that the idea that God presents to us is fundamentally different because it's the truth that is the basis for the entire universe. And our job is not to augment it or to make it attractive. Our job is simply to declare it, even if it puts us under a condition of danger, or even if it threatens us or a relationship, because that is not a truth that is shaped by us, but rather we are shaped by the truth of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And therefore, bless you, we are to declare fully the truth of, uh, uh, of what uh, Jesus has done for us and in us and through us. Amen. Uh, questions? Talk?